0: If you're new with us, uh, we are in the book of Daniel, chapter 4, trying to make our way through roughly a a chapter a week, 6th century B.C. God's people are in exile in Babylon, and we read of various stories of uh, Daniel and his companions and uh, the the work of God, and here we have uh, a wonderful text in front of us. Let's pray and ask for the Lord's help as we jump in. God, as we see in the book of Daniel, you are seated high. you look low. And I pray that you, the exalted one, would come and look low today and have mercy on us. Grant us eyes to see wonderful things from your word. What we know not, please teach us. What we have not, please give us. And what we are not, please make us. For Christ's sake we pray. Amen. I recently played for my wife the Hall of Fame speech from 2009 of basketball superstar David Robinson, the admiral. Um, that speech uh, sticks out to me for one simple reason. It is refreshingly humble. Often these speeches made by great athletes are just filled with bravado and arrogance and sometimes players have even taken the opportunity to take jabs at people. But this speech was so different. He thanked everyone. He rarely talked about himself. He thanked the Naval Academy. He thanked the Spurs, his team. He Spoke to each individual child of his. The speech was only about six, seven minutes. He thanked his wife, he thanked the coaches, and then he told the story of the 10 lepers in the Gospels and how he wanted to be the one leper that gave thanks to the Lord. A <laughs> remarkable speech. And it was similar to what Sarah McLaughlin did in the recent Olympics as she won the uh, set a world record for the 400 meter, meter hurdles expressing that same humble spirit that really just catches you by surprise in the modern-day world when she says, I don't deserve anything, but by grace, through faith, Jesus has given me everything. Records come and go. The glory of God is eternal. I'm like, wow, that's what, we just heard a sermon, uh, right? And, in, and the, these stories stick out again because it's just not the, the world we live in. We live in a world filled with bravado and arrogance and self-exaltation, And for that reason, we need Daniel chapter 4. We read about a self-exalting king who was humbled. And in fact, the last verse is so powerful from the words of Nebuchadnezzar who was changed from a a pagan king to an animal, uh, animal, in an animal-like existence, and then restored once again. And he leaves this great principle behind at the end of Daniel 4, verse 37. Those who walk in pride, God is able to humble. You know, we read verses in the Bible about God opposing the proud and giving grace to the humble, and many verses in Proverbs. Here it's in a story. Here's an illustration of of God's ability to humble the arrogant, and also God's grace in giving grace to those who are humble. Now, if you've been with us uh, in our study, you know that this is not the first dream. This is the second dream that we're looking at in the book of Daniel. So, if you kids are drawing pictures, it's another good week uh, to, to draw pictures uh, because it's a very vivid dream that he has. The first dream, as you might recall, was the dream of a statue that represented the various empires that would follow uh, Nebuchadnezzar and how one stone would break all of the other. It would break this statue, this stone that represents Christ and the kingdom. Here the the dream is not a dream of a statue, it's the dream of a tree. This massive tree, which uh, we're told clearly in verse 22 of the chapter, refers to Nebuchadnezzar. He is uh, filled with grandeur and glory, and he has been the ruler of a great empire. But he gets this dream that the tree is going to be chopped down. And he gets interpreted by Daniel, who Three times in this story we're, we're told that this is happening. This humbling of Nebuchadnezzar is happening that, the, that, they, that he may know and that everyone else may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men. And he sits over at the lowliest of men. That's repeated three times in this particular chapter. Now as we prepare to walk through the, the chapter briefly uh, this morning, I want you to keep kind of four applications in mind as we walk our way through it that you're going to see. The first I've already mentioned, and that is this, this note of humility. This is a text that should cause us to evaluate our own lives, to see uh, uh, areas of, of pride and rebellion and stubbornness in our hearts, a resistance to God's Word, a, 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 the tendency to be self-exalting. This is a chapter that should humble us, and we need that. All of Christian virtue flows out of a humble heart. Another application I want you to see as we work our way through it is this this theme of of Daniel being a witness in a dark place. You know, Daniel's a fascinating character, and you would be tempted perhaps to think that the story, the book of Daniel is one extraordinary event after another in the life of Daniel, but that that is not correct. We read of about a 70-year run that this man makes in Babylon, and we only read of nine events in his life. And so what you have a picture of is a guy who just shows up day after day, does his job with dignity and compassion. He lives out a faithful life in exile to his God, will not bow down to the idols of the age, and he stands ready for golden opportunities to bear witness to God's saving power. And we can relate to that, can't we? Much of our life is not one extraordinary event after another. (laughs) It's mowing the grass and eating meatloaf and whatever you do in your ho-hum job and so on. But God gives us opportunities As we stay faithful in the ordinary to bear witness to Jesus. By this time, Daniel is a middle-aged man. And I find encouragement in that. We've been making application for teenagers. Now here's something for the middle-aged guys. right? If you stay long enough, there'll be senior adult time uh, by the time we get to the end of the book. (laughs) But maybe Daniel is asking the same kinds of questions that middle-aged guys ask. Is God still with me? Am I in the right job? Am I making the most of my opportunities? And you see this steady life of faithfulness. And occasionally, he got these great opportunities. And Daniel gives us a beautiful picture of it. There's another theme I want you to see, and that is the theme of hope. You see this from the story of Nebuchadnezzar, whose heart is changed. As Alistair Beck says, this is perhaps the most unlikely convert in the history of the world. It's like an Old Testament version of the Apostle Paul. He goes from persecutor, that's chapter 3, throwing guys in the fire, to now, the praise leader in chapter four. And so, if you have on your heart someone who is just hardened to the gospel, perhaps an atheist or a wayward child or someone that you think will never bow the knee to Jesus Christ, you see in chapter four that God can change hearts. God's specialty is changing hearts, He's really good at it. And so, I want you to be encouraged by this chapter. And the final theme is obvious, and that is the theme of worship. The chapter begins and ends with poems of worship to God. We see in this text that human glory is fleeting, and God's glory is eternal. And this is what we're made for, to see glory in the face of Jesus Christ. So with that in mind now, I want you to work your way through this story with me under three headings. First of all, we see a personal crisis. Secondly, we see a faithful witness. And thirdly, we see a complete transformation. But before that, the introduction. Verses 1 to 3, the conclusion of the story is actually stated in the introduction. As Nebuchadnezzar takes the pen, as it were, and he begins to declare praise to God. King Nebuchadnezzar, it says, To all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. We just read about him throwing the three Hebrew boys in the fire, and now he wants to give testimony to what God has done for him. So what we're about to read in verses 4 and following is a flashback that led him to this conclusion. And he wants the nations to know what God has done for him. This is really a beautiful picture. So the text sort of flows like Psalm 73, where the psalmist begins with the conclusion and says, truly God is good to Israel. And then takes us through all the trauma and the drama of doubting that. Why do the wicked prosper? And then he arrives back at that conclusion that he started with, basically. We're going to see Nebuchadnezzar, the text starts with this note of praise to God. It ends with praise to God. But what God had to do to bring this man to this position is truly remarkable. He is the guy who, again, was persecuting God's people, who was full of himself. And now he says, I want the whole world to know Notice what God has not just done, but what he's done for me. And as you think about God's sovereignty as he expresses it in verse 3, how great are his signs and mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. His dominion endures from generation to generation. God's sovereignty is not a doctrine that should make us think that God is somehow aloof, distant, detached. It's what he's done for me. So he's sovereign over the macro things of the world, but he's also sovereign over micro little me. Right? And this sovereign God has done something for Nebuchadnezzar. He is a personal God. He is a kind God. A sovereign God. And that's important to remember. Nebuchadnezzar is praising the God who first made him like a beast. Because Nebuchadnezzar knows there's something worse than being turned into a cow. And that is being eternally ruined by your pride. God humbled this man in a severe way. Behold the kindness and severity of God that he may save him. And that's a mercy. And that's the pattern of our lives. Of course, hopefully you haven't come through this particular kind of crisis, being turned into a beast, but God has to humble us in order to save us. So let's look at that personal crisis of Nebuchadnezzar. It's very like, uh, in some sense, powerful people who come to faith in Jesus, they often travel through a severe crisis. It's the crisis that often wakes them up, causes them to ask questions. But again, at another level, all of us have come through a crisis in order to become Christians. We've been faced with the question, will I repent and believe the gospel or continue in my rebellious pride? That's the crisis that we all come to. And so here, God troubles the heart of Nebuchadnezzar once again in a dream. All is going well, verse 4. He said he's at ease, prospering in his palace. And historians tell us how majestic was this palace. This seems to be at the end of Nebuchadnezzar's reign. There's peace in the land. All the building projects are finished. And he had, as we say, life by the tail. Just prospering in his palace. Those hanging gardens of Babylon, one of the seven wonders of the world. You can imagine Nebuchadnezzar just walking out, looking at all of the glory. And then in a moment it changes. He has a dream. Verse 5. I saw a dream that made me afraid. And as I lay in bed, the fancies and the visions of my head alarmed me. How quickly peace can leave us. We're at ease one day, and all it takes is a phone call, all it takes is a word from the physician, and the foundations crumble. And Nebuchadnezzar finds himself in that kind of position when all was well, and then he has this alarming dream. And you know the drill if you were with us in chapter 2. He calls all the guys who are supposed to be the dream interpreters. And once again, they fail. Their dream interpretation manuals can't solve the riddle. They don't know what to do. The astrologers, the enchanters, the magicians. And so like in chapter 2, Daniel is called upon to interpret this dream. Verse 8, we see that he is uh, known to have a particular spirit about him. There's something distinct about Daniel. He is a light in a dark place. Would that all of us be distinct in that way? That there's something special about this guy. He is God's gift to Nebuchadnezzar. Over and over again, he is his witness to the true God in the midst of idolatry, in the midst of paganism. Here is Daniel, and he he, he hears uh, Nebuchadnezzar tell him about the dream in verse nine. Nebuchadnezzar gave Daniel this name, Belteshazzar, after the name of of his God. And he goes on to tell him about the the dream, that there is this massive tree, verse 10, its height was great, it became strong, it reaches up to the heavens, and it provided food, and it gave shade, and the the beasts were, were under it, and so on. But notice verse 13. Nebuchadnezzar sees something else. In addition to this massive tree, which represents him, and his empire, I saw in the visions of my head as I lay in the bed, behold, a watcher, a holy one, came down from heaven. It's very interesting. This holy being called a, a watcher here in Daniel, it's the only place where we read of a, a watcher. Um, it's in First Enoch. You're probably reading that this morning with your oatmeal. Uh, in a non-canonical book. And anyway, the, 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 this is what happens. He proclaimed aloud and said, "'Chop down the tree and lop off its branches, "'strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. "'Let the beasts flee from under it "'and the birds from its branches. "'But leave the stump.'" All right? So this, this is a verse for all you landscapers. You've got a, a Daniel 4, verse 14 ministry. To, "'To chop down the tree and lop off all the branches.'" And this is a vivid image of Nebuchadnezzar. This massive tree is going to be laid bare and he's going to be reduced to a stump. He's going to exist. He's not going to die. But then we're told something very ominous is going to happen here. He says, leave this stump and then let him be wet with the dew of heaven. Let his portion be with the beasts in the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from that of a man's and let a beast's mind be given to him and let seven periods of time pass over him. So in a perfect allotted amount of time according to God's sovereign timetable until this time passes. Why? Why does God do all of this? Notice verse 17. The sentence is by the decree of the watchers, the decision by the word of the holy ones, to the end that the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sits over it the lowliest of men. This this, this is stated three times in in this book. This is one of the verses we are to keep in mind. Why all of the drama here? This big tree, chop it down. Leave a stump. The stump's going to be reduced to animal-like existence so that everyone would know that there's only one God, the Most High God, who rules all the kingdoms of men, and he gives to it whomever he wills, and he sits over it the lowliest of men. This is a wonderful statement about the sovereignty of God. His present sovereignty. You notice it's not that he ruled 6th century B.C. It's that he rules presently. It's a concrete sovereignty. Notice he rules something. He rules the kingdoms of men. He rules right now in real space, time, and history. It's a free sovereignty to whomever he wills. He is not constricted. And it's an exclusive sovereignty in that he is the only most high. And notice also, it's a fascinating sovereignty. He sets over it the lowliest of men. He raises up people out of obscure status, makes them leaders in his kingdom. This is fuel for worship today. There is no God like our God. And this verse is fuel for our perspective on the world. you realize how... How world-shifting this is as you think about this idea. I love how Del Ralph Davis puts it. You must not be overly impressed by human governments nor awed by human rulers. Human governments are interim arrangements that God appoints to fill space until the power and glory of Jesus' kingdom comes. Human rulers, tyrannical or democratic, are God's lackeys who have tenure only at his pleasure good to be reminded who rules let's not get it twisted this is fuel for trust we can trust this god this is fuel for a hope you can hope in this god it's his kingdom this is this is fuel for humility let's not try to play god why is all this happening why chop the tree down think about the johnny cash song sooner or later gotta cut you down that's a good verse i asked the band if they'd sing it but they didn't know it but anyway i'll lead it later maybe uh So here's this guy, this king. He's been brought to a personal crisis. And I just wonder in a room with this many people or perhaps those who watch online or those who listen later, maybe you're in a personal crisis. Maybe God is trying to get your attention. What do we do during that time? Where do we look? What we need is the ultimate wise man, Jesus Christ. Maybe it is God's grace causing foundations to crumble around you so that you look to the one who will never crumble. And if he does it, praise his name. Nebuchadnezzar doesn't like the dream, verse 18. It seems that he doesn't want to believe it. And so he asks Daniel now to interpret it. And Daniel doesn't really tell him anything a whole lot different than what Nebuchadnezzar already knows. He just confirms it, adds a little bit to it. Notice this faithful witness in verses 19 to 27. Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, was dismayed for a while and his thoughts alarmed him. So you notice here a combination of courage, we've already mentioned this about Daniel, and compassion. He's, he speaks truth to power. He's a bold witness to this pagan king, but he also seems to genuinely care for this king. And I wonder which of those is, is harder for you in present society. <laughs> uh, the, the, we're not short on temper tantrums today. What we are short on is compassion, right? And we're short on courage. Like there's going to be a time in which both are challenged, and I see this beautiful blend here in Daniel. He says, uh, uh, it goes on, the king answered and said, Belteshazzar, let not the dream or interpretation alarm you. Like he first tries to comfort Daniel. Daniel doesn't want this dream to be about Nebuchadnezzar. He doesn't delight in the fact that he's going to get judgment. He he could feel that way. I mean, he's brought all of Israel into captivity. He just threw his buddies into fire to die. And Daniel, though, says... My Lord, may the dream be for those who hate you and its interpretation for your enemies. It's a a remarkable statement for Daniel to make. I mean, if you were under Nebuchadnezzar, wouldn't you say, you got what's coming to you, (laughs) pal? You deserve it. And in many ways, that that would, of course, be correct. But Daniel here, again, is exhibiting a great sense of, of brokenness and compassion and courage. Verses 20 to 25, he basically summarizes the dream Tells Nebuchadnezzar in verse 22, it's you, O king. It's you who have grown and become strong, and so on. And now you're about to be chopped down to size. You're going to be turned into this animal. Verse 25, you should be made to eat grass like an ox. Why? Till you know, verse 25, that the Most High rules the kingdom of men. We want you to know this, king. Daniel here is a faithful witness to the king, he tells him about the, the whole, how the whole thing's going to go down. And then notice verse 27, he does something additionally. The king only asked for the interpretation, but now Daniel offers, as he says, his counsel. In other words, what are you going to do with the interpretation? And you say, that's important. To, to have a Bible and to know it and to have someone interpret it for you so that you can understand it leaves you with, with something then to do about it. And so Daniel says, here's the counsel, king. This is the application, king. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness. The implication, you've been practicing unrighteousness. And your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed. You have been oppressing people, been crushing people, that there may perhaps, I love that, a divine perhaps, just maybe there might be a lengthening of your prosperity. Maybe if you heed this counsel, this this warning that's been given in front of you, that you are about to be humiliated, then maybe, maybe, there may be a lengthening to your prosperity. You may not have to endure this judgment. Now, Daniel is a, a wonderful witness, isn't he? He does not shirk back from speaking God's word to this powerful man. And we need this kind of courage today. How many of you know we live in a world filled with radical agendas, a growingly secular culture where it is very strange for you to be a Christian in corporate America. And you will have those occasions in which someone throws you the softball and you can speak a good word about Christ or you can just whiff at it and not go for it. I heard an encouraging one a couple of weeks ago from a faithful member of this church who's in a corporate America uh, position, a global corporation, and and the boss is like, well, let's all get to know each other. Let's all just share the top five things about yourself. And you know, in those moments, you can, you can go for it or you can play it safe. You know what I'm talking about? And so people are saying, yeah, you know, I like butterflies and my favorite color is orange. And, you know, I, <laughs> I like Chick-fil-A and, and then it comes around to him and the moment has come. The Daniel 4 moment has come. <laughs> he says, well, I'm a Christian. I go to church every week. I read the Bible. Number two, you know, and he's like nobody even acknowledged that he said anything. It was that, one of that awkward moment. And we have those opportunities. Kids, you'll have those in school, in the gym, at the park, wherever it is. We need to be encouraged from Daniel that our job is to be faithful. Only God changes hearts. Daniel could not change Nebuchadnezzar's heart, but what he could do is be a faithful witness. And let's learn from that. Let's remember how the Lord opened up the heart of Lydia. You know that story in Acts 16? A group of ladies are there having a little Bethmore Bible study and, uh, in Hebrew, and uh, the Apostle Paul walks up, begins to speak the message, and Luke says the Lord opened her heart to understand the message. We prayerfully witness to God's gospel praying that he would open up hearts. So Daniel does that. And notice the third aspect here, this complete transformation, verses 28 to 37. Verse 28 is very instructive for us. All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar, in verse 29, at the end of 12 months, as he was walking on the roof of the royal palace in Babylon. 12 months. Daniel gave him counsel, in verse 27, and he did nothing about it. Sometimes people think, man, if I had a better teacher, I would be more spiritual. This king had Daniel. Judas had Jesus. (laughs) What will you do with what you know? He's here for 12 months. Nothing has changed. This is a sure sign of pride. We're talking a lot about pride and humility in this chapter. Here's one sign of pride. You do nothing with God's word. It just does not have an impact on you. Your conscience uh, is is silenced to it. read of a, an old uh, but helpful illustration of, a, of, a, of one's conscience being silenced in, in this story about a blacksmith who, long story short, uh, gets a dog. And you can imagine a dog barking like crazy at, in the blacksmith shop as he's hammering away at the steel. And a visitor came by and said the dog was just throwing a fit. And then he came back a few weeks later, and he's still barking but not as much. And then eventually returned after some time, and the dog was just asleep at the fire. Like the the hammering no longer had an impact. And it's very possible to be around God's word week after week, year after year, and have no impact on you. It, It does not do anything. Here's 12 months goes by, and not only has Nebuchadnezzar not changed, it seems that he's just continued to persist. As we read in verses 30 and following, he's glorying in his own self. There is no turning from sin, practicing righteousness. There is no change of the way he's treating the oppressed. In fact, what he's doing is playing God. Verse 30, the king answered and said, Is not this the great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence for the glory of my majesty? (laughs) It's very similar to Herod in Acts 12. Babylon was indeed great, but King Nebuchadnezzar is mistaking his handiwork for God's handiwork. He's mistaking his sovereignty for God's sovereignty. He's playing God, wanting glory. And as uh, James Bond, the new film, put it well, history isn't kind to men who play God. And that's a good word. And here it is with Nebuchadnezzar 31. While the words were still in the king's mouth. Think about that. While he is boasting in the moment of his impressiveness, there fell a voice from heaven, O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken, the kingdom has departed from you. Just like that. Just like that, the Most High acts. How quickly it can all crumble. How quickly the self-exalted is humiliated. And not only does the kingdom take notice, what's what happens? Verse 32. And you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time shall pass over you until, here it is again, you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Immediately, in a moment, the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was Taken from men and made to eat grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers, and his nails were like bird claws. How about that? <laughs> That's crazy. He experienced what some today call this disorder boanthropy, where one imagines himself or herself being a cow or a bull. Or more generally, lycanthropy, which is where a person imagines himself to be just an animal. One writer says, Old Testament scholar R.K. Harrison observed an actual case of boanthropy in a British mental institution in 1946. He saw a man in his early 20s in fine bodily health but decidedly antisocial who spent whole days from dawn to dusk outdoors on institutional grounds. He was limited in his ability to care for himself, so someone always washed and shaved him. They gave him water from a clean container so he wouldn't drink from mud puddles. But as he wandered over the grounds, he would pick up chunks of grass to eat. He never ate institutional cuisine with other inmates." a terribly sad story. It's that kind of thing that's happened here to Nebuchadnezzar. In this case, it's an actual judgment from God. We know that because of the text, and we can't say that all those cases are judgments. That's another conversation. But this is God taking this man who thought he was Superman and makes him subhuman. It's a vivid example of Luke 51, 52, Mary's song when she says, He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in their thoughts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. Or Paul's words in Galatians 6, 7, Do not be deceived, God is not mocked. What a person sows, that will he reap. This warning that Nebuchadnezzar gives us is that we would heed God's word. We would listen to his counsel, that we would walk in his ways. First, there's humiliation, but the story's not end; it's not over. Verse 34 to 37, there is restoration. God comes to Nebuchadnezzar and changes him. And Nebuchadnezzar gives us this first person testimony. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven and my reason returned to me. (laughs) I got my reason back. And and what do you do when you you get your reason back? I bless the Most High. (laughs) I praise and honor Him who lives forever. What a change in this man. Walking around, taking his shirt off. Look at Babylon. Look what I've built. Look at these hanging gardens. I turned into an ox before Him. And now He's restored me. And I bless His name the most unlikely convert in the Old Testament. Here he is. Look what a confession of faith. He confesses the sovereignty of God, the creatureliness of humanity, God's truthfulness and righteousness. He says, from his dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. That's like right out of the page of Psalm 145, generation to generation, covenantal language. From this pagan Babylonian king. God has changed him. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. He does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, What have you done? God humbled this man so that he may know him. And that's the pattern of our salvation. Before he humbles him, we're lost in our stubbornness and self existence, self exaltation rather. And this process of repentance is also painful for us. The transformation may not be from beastly animal to praise leader, but nevertheless, when God has to deal with our pride, it is quite an ordeal, isn't it? There's often a fight we put up. There's that beautiful story in uh, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader by C.S. Lewis as he describes this fictional character, Eustace Scrub. He just sounds like a little rascal. And he is. He's, he's a boy ruled by his pride, and his pride turns him into a dragon. And Aslan, the Christ figure, says, you will have to let me undress you. And Eustace says, I was afraid of his claws. I can tell you I was pretty near desperate, so I just lay flat on my back and I let him do it. And the first tear he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right into my heart. And when he began pulling the skin of the dragon off, it hurt worse than anything I'd ever felt. The only thing that made me able to bear it was just the pleasure of feeling the stuff peeled off. Do you know that kind of pleasure? God ripping your pride away. Making you a new creation. Humbling you for your eternal good. If you're not a Christian, that's a great thing to think on. Dear God, my pride has almost ruined me. Please change me. Put new clothes on me. Give me the garments of Jesus Christ. This is what's happened to us in the gospel. We see our own testimony in Nebuchadnezzar's testimony. Our pride nearly ruined us. And thanks be to God, he humbled us that he may show grace to us. Think about if you're still lost in your pride, where you would be. God doing his work of humbling the human heart. Giving grace to the humble. This is the only way anyone becomes a Christian. Not the intellectuals. It's not the upper class. Intervene and do some radical thing in your life to humble you. Then we don't delight in that particular act. But we do delight in the result of that act. That if it causes you to look to Jesus Christ. And praise be to God. There's something worse for Nebuchadnezzar than being turned into an ox, and that would be to suffer eternal torment. But God didn't leave him there. Well, it's not the end of the story. He not only gets his reason back, verse 36, he gets his kingdom back. And it's even greater than before. For the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and lords sought and extolled honor the king of heaven for all his works are right his ways are just and here's the phrase those who walk in pride he is able to humble what a testimony some call him the pagan Job you know Job started righteous lost everything in the end gets it all back Nebuchadnezzar was unrighteous loses it all gets it all back but what he got even more than his kingdom is a relationship with God Think about this. These are the last words that we read from Nebuchadnezzar. When we get to chapter 5 next week, it's a new king. The last word Nebuchadnezzar wants us to give, to, to hear, is let's praise and honor the king of heaven. And those who walk in pride, he's able to humble. So think through these final reflections, church. First of all, humility. Let your theology make it to your heart. Heed the warnings of Scripture, that you don't grow numb to hearing it. Heed it immediately. Recognize the handiwork of God in your life. Recognize how fleeting your glory is and how everlasting Jesus is. It's a word of humility in this chapter. It's a word about our witness. Daniel is a light to the nations. He stayed ready, even though we only have nine events in his life recorded in about 70-year span. Faithful, quiet obedience, moments to speak a good word about the Lord. Let's, let's be on the lookout for those opportunities. Hope. This story should encourage anyone who's burdened for someone who is lost in prideful rebellion. If God can convert and change Nebuchadnezzar and the Apostle Pauls of the world, then let's keep, let's, keep, let's keep hoping. Let's keep praying to God to change hearts. Finally, this is a word of worship. Nebuchadnezzar gets it right. Let's praise the king of heaven. And my friends, we have a king in heaven. His name is Jesus Christ. And we're going to praise this king of heaven forever. And the reason we can praise him is he humbled himself. He humbled himself. The exalted one, the perfect one. He took our death, took our judgment, has given us forgiveness and righteousness, rose from the dead, has given us the hope of everlasting life. And all of history is headed toward all the nations. As Nebuchadnezzar says, I want all the nations to know this. Well, one day we will be with that group. Every people, tribe, tongue, and language. And we will praise our King in heaven. He alone is worthy. And you think the Babylonian gardens were something to look at. Nebuchadnezzar thinks his space is something to look at. Soon one day the glory of God will cover the earth as the waters cover the seas. And paradise that was lost will be paradise that is restored. And we who have humbled ourselves by God's grace and received this king have this hope. And that makes me happy. You've been very patient, church. It's a lot of text. A lot of hope. A lot of gospel. Praise God. Father, thank you for your mercy for your kindness in not leaving us in our rebellion, but crushing our pride. that We may, like the man in the parable, just look up and say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner, and you have done so. Thank you that we who are dead in sin have been made alive together with Christ. And for the hope we have in Christ today, we rejoice. Lord Jesus, you are the king of heaven, and we pray you would be king over our hearts. May we live to your glory as we think about what you've done for us now in the Lord's Supper. Even now, receive our praise in Jesus' good name. Amen.